Roberts, you've likely heard these stories in the past. We've talked about the medical isotope shortage, but it sometimes can be a bit confusing as to why it really matters and why it is we have the shortages. Well, my next guest is joining us to talk a little bit more about that and to also talk about how a local company is making huge progress when it comes to producing radioisotopes. And these are isotopes that are vital when it comes to the medical industry. And Paul Schaefer joins me on the line, Chief Technology Officer for Artemis Products. And uh, Paul, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, You're also the Associate Lab Director of Life Sciences at Triumph. So how are you involved in this production of these isotopes? Yeah, um, it's really uh, it's, it's been a fascinating story from my perspective. Um, I uh, chose to uh, get a, a degree in, in chemistry, a PhD degree in chemistry, and long story short, ended up in Vancouver about 10 years ago uh, working for Triumph. Uh, and shortly after my arrival, the uh, medical isotope crisis started to hit, and uh, the government of Canada had made some decisions to to open up some alternatives and had asked a number of groups across the country to pursue them. And we were one of the fortunate groups to be, uh, to receive some funding to, to pursue. And, and over those 10 years, it's been just uh, an amazing journey, to be honest, in the development um, uh, through Triumph and then eventually the uh, spin-off company uh, formation of Artemis Products Incorporated, which is now uh, licensed and is uh, commercializing uh, this technology and moving it into to new areas beyond its original uh, intent and design. Uh, so what exactly do isotopes do? What makes them so vital? Mm, yeah, great question. So, so isotopes are the ones that we're talking about are, are basically uh, unstable forms of the uh, the matter around us. So every day, we the things that we touch and see and do are all made of stable elements in the universe, and those ones are represented on the periodic table that I think we've all come across at one point. And um, the unstable forms are ones that uh, decay through some mode in order to uh, become more stable. And in that process of decay, what we've uh, learned to do over the years is to harness those radioactive emissions in order to give us information about things. And in medical cases, what we do is we inject um, unstable isotopes of uh, carbon and fluorine and and others uh, into the body. Um, They're designed into pharmaceutical drug-like compounds that behave like drugs in the body. Um, But we essentially trick the body into using those compounds as they're designed to do but the radioactive emissions give us a picture of what's happening inside of the body. And that's, that's helping clinicians more and more uh, manage diseases in the cardiovascular realm. That's a big one. Um, oncology, cancer, uh, neurological um, applications. And then there's also um, a school of compounds used for metabolic information. So really many different areas across the medical spectrum isotopes are used for. It's fascinating to, to think about that and to just to understand how that, that works because I think it's often been linked to cancer treatments, but it sounds like it's much more broad than that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly we're talking about the type of isotopes that work from the inside out. I think a lot of us associate cancer treatments with uh, like the gamma knife or the irradiation uh, type uh, procedures that we uh, sometimes know and unfortunately know some of our our close ones are subjected to. And I think um, there's a key difference. The outside in is is trying to treat, like you were saying. Uh, The inside out is is trying to image. And more recently, we're also seeing applications in treatment as well. So radioisotopes are are finding really key and critical roles uh, across across the spectrum. 
And what led to the shortage? Because we've been talking about the shortage and the bit of a crisis, I, 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 I guess we could call it, when it comes to medical isotopes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So isotopes are really made in two ways. Um, the, the first and major way is through a nuclear reactor activity. And that's something that Canada has been a leader at in years. And, um, and basically what we do is we take uh, isotope, elements like uh, uranium-235. Uh, and despite all of the sociopolitical implications of enriching it, there are also medical benefits. And, and reactors are well known for producing a number of, of medical isotopes by the fission of uranium. Um, but in British Columbia, we don't have any reactors. Instead, we use a technology called particle accelerators or cyclotrons in this case. And uh, what those um, those uh, machines do is they create uh, radioisotopes by bombarding stable materials with uh, particle beams, in this case, um, uh, accelerated beams of protons. And it sounds kind of um, uh, mythical in, in some cases, but I think it's, it's really um, it's a technology that's been around for several decades. I mean, Triumph itself has been around for over 50 years. And um, the technologies associated with it are very multidisciplinary, and I think we find ourselves in a a wonderful uh, niche here in Vancouver, greater area, tons of expertise in the field. And uh, we're quite uh, blessed, if you will, with the amount of isotopes that, that we can make uh, with particle accelerators. So those are the two key ways of making isotopes. So how did the shortages happen in the past? Very briefly, I mean, reactors are getting older and uh, sometimes experiencing maintenance issues. And for safety reasons, we'll be taken offline. And the amount of isotopes they can produce is quite large. So the implications are usually felt by a large number of patients. And so basically what we've seen a shift toward over the last uh, several years, maybe even a couple of decades now, is more and more involvement from the particle accelerator realm. And in Vancouver, we're also quite uh, well um, uh, suited and uh, and outfitted with particle accelerators. We have several at uh, BC Cancer and at Triumph uh, out on uh, UBC campus. And we use those accelerators in many cases to, to make medical isotopes. And that's how we're trying to stave off future shortages. Hmm, it's interesting. So moving more to an accelerator base way of doing it rather than a reactor base. That, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and what is a Triumph then? What is it? Is it researchers like yourself uh, combined with, with money or research grants? Or what do you think it is that, that kind of gives Triumph and gives Artemis the, the, the upper hand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so, I mean, Artemis is certainly um, looking to produce uh, a new, a, a wide repertoire, repertoire of uh, medical isotopes that are in demand. Um, I think what gives uh, us the, uh, the advantage, I think, is uh, that certainly the, the talent, first and foremost, that's available to us um, through the, the universities, through the, the cancer agency, uh, Triumph itself. Um, we have a lot of very, very talented people. And then there's the depth and the history and the technology and just the familiarity. So when we have any kind of technical challenge, uh, we have uh, people on the periphery constantly able to swoop in and give advice and, and provide solutions. And so we're able to, in a, in a very quick way, develop these technologies and, uh, and translate them into the clinic. So across the spectrum, from basic physics, engineers, uh, chemists like myself, onto uh, biochemists, health scientists, and me- medical doctors, they're all, they're all in the area here. And is it selfish to look at that thinking that that's a way that's going to really secure Canada's isotope supply, or is it more of a a global thing? Mm, I mean, we're certainly uh, wanting to be that example. Absolutely. I think um, our technology is being implemented. It's already in Hamilton and London, Ontario. Toronto is is going to be installing a system. 
very soon. And and what we're talking about, just for clarity to the audience, I mean, these cyclotrons are available. They are not um, made by, by Artemis or, or Triumph, but there are cyclotrons made by Canadian company in Richmond, uh, British Columbia, called Advanced Cyclotron Systems. Uh, and there are others, um, General Electric and Siemens, and, and big companies make these machines. And so there, there are about 1,400 of them in the world today. And what Artemis has done, essentially, along with uh, you know, tries to try and spin off, has developed hardware that straps onto the side of these cyclotrons and allows the users to to expand the utility of these machines and make isotopes beyond what they were originally installed for. So that's that's the example, and um, we're working toward implementing in Canada, certainly around the world. Well, very interesting uh, research and developments on that front. Paul, thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about it today. I appreciate your time. Thanks for your interest and have a good day. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, a couple of updates when it comes to COVID-19, the spread of the virus. There is news out this morning of southeastern China that a building that was being used for the medical observation of people who had been in contact with coronavirus patients has collapsed. Apparently about 70 people are trapped, no reports of deaths, but there are now efforts underway to rescue people from that wreckage. Uh, this, after we know there's a cruise ship off the coast of California where people have tested positive. Another cruise ship on the Nile River with more than 150 tourists is in quarantine. And locally, we're hearing about Seabus and other transit vehicles being washed and cleaned more frequently as a way to try and stop the spread of the virus. Also heard a bit more out of the nursing home in Seattle where several people have tested positive and there have been deaths. Some people saying, well, wait a minute. There weren't any precautions being taken when we first learned about this and uh, saying that perhaps they were a bit slow to start responding to word that COVID-19 was present in that facility. So how are we doing when it comes to responding to this virus and what should we be doing? Let's bring in Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, also an expert in microbiology and immunology. Jason, thanks for being back on the show. Uh, It's a pleasure to be joining you. Uh, What are your thoughts on how things are shaping up with the various developments as COVID-19 continues spreading? Well, we're beginning to realize that this virus uh, isn't the big killer that we heard about um, back at the beginning of January. Uh, I mean, even for myself, um, it seemed like it was only affecting a few people. It wasn't spreading from person to person. And unfortunately, uh, it could lead to death. Um, I, I sort of as this has been evolving, we've been learning that it was really the testing that was being missed. Um, and, and as a result, we now understand that this can spread from person to person um, quite easily, kind of like the common cold or, or the flu, um, and that there are still some components to it that make it a little bit more dangerous, especially for people who have uh, pre-existing conditions. So I think what's happening is that we've gone from seeing this as being a China problem now to being a global problem, and we're trying to do our best to make sure that the people who are most at risk uh, are safe and the rest of the public does their job or does you know, their part to prevent the spread. And how much faith do you have that people will be able to do that? Well... <laughs> To be honest with you, we've been, it's the same thing that we've been asking for year after year after year um, with respect to cold and flu season, and it's been totally ignored. It's just that for this 
particular virus, because it started off as being this dramatic killer, people have paid more attention to it. And so it's stuck in people's minds. And now people are following through on what is necessary. Now, granted, not everybody is doing this. Otherwise, we would have that, um, you know, containment of spread. But I think the, the word is out there, and more and more people are beginning to understand that, yes, indeed, we do need to take these precautions whenever we have viruses like this spreading, and we should be a bit more cautious about um, you know, uh, our contact with other individuals, uh, surfaces should be disinfected and cleaned, and uh, maybe we shouldn't be sharing coffee cups with other people. And what do you, so because a lot of the fear I think is coming from when figures get thrown out saying that this is this percent more deadly than Mm -hmm. the flu and that's causing a bit of fear and panic in people. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing is, is that right now, the only way that we can tell that someone has this particular virus is if we do a proper test. And really, um, there haven't been that many tests available in the majority of places around the world. Um, You know, the only place actually that has been doing this properly is South Korea. And if you look at South Korea, um, their case mortality rate, in other words, the amount of people who are dying who are also proven to be positive in comparison to everybody who has been proven to be positive is less than 0.5%. So the fact is that we need to understand who is being infected, and we need to prove that through testing in order to get a really good understanding of what this fatality rate happens to be. And yes, it's going to be higher than the flu um, because it does have such a huge impact on people who have pre-existing conditions like hypertension, diabetes, but by the same respect, it's not going to be this, you know, as bad as SARS was, which was 10%, and definitely not MERS, which was the Middle East version of coronavirus, which was 33%. And is that because even with the testing, and I think BC has been touting itself as one of the better testers that it's done mm-hmm. many, many tests and retested people. But is it because, so the, the fatality rate at this point is based on what we know, and that means that there are, there are an unknown number of people out there who also have this? Uh, here in Canada, uh, I'm pretty confident that we're doing a very good job of being able to hold on to um, the real cases that exist. Right now, there is uncontrolled spread in a few places of the world, and unfortunately, it seems like the United States, our cousins to the south, happen to be um, one of those places. So we're starting to hear about cases that are coming into Canada from the United States that we would never have thought about. I think the most recent one that I heard that was a bit, uh, oh my goodness, was Las Vegas. So if the virus is spreading in Las Vegas, then you know that there's going to be you know, a lot that's going on. But we're not hearing about the deaths. And and we're not hearing about the hospitalizations that we would have expected if this was a real killer. So I think in that particular case, what BC is doing is they're making sure that they're focusing on catching what they can, and they're doing an excellent job of it. I mean, everybody should be following what BC is doing, even here in Alberta. Um, And when you have that, you're able to make sure that you're um, on top of the situation. And if we do end up having hospitalizations and unfortunately deaths, it will give us a better understanding of how the virus works so that we're not scared, we're prepared. There is one hospitalization in BC and also one case of a community spread. So they don't know who this person got it from. How concerning Mm -hmm. is that? Community spread is an unfortunate reality with respect to this particular virus. Uh, We've seen this in numerous other countries. We're seeing it in the States. And now it's sort of something that we're going to possibly be seeing here in Canada. I think, though, 
the, the, the key is that if you do happen to have symptoms that are mimicking what you think might be, uh, you know, the COVID-19, you want to make sure that you're making that phone call to a healthcare professional. You may not need to go into any kind of facility. They may just simply tell you to monitor yourself at home. But if you sort of do your part once you've become sick to try and, you know, prevent the spread and more importantly, keep an eye on yourself, I think that's going to help to reduce the chances that more community spread is going to happen. I mean, we're not going to be able to stop it. It, it, The virus just simply spreads that way. But we can make sure that we ourselves do what's necessary to prevent that spread from happening. All right. We will leave it there. Jason, always great to talk to you uh, on this topic. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure and uh, take care. Well, you've seen the pictures and we've been talking about people stockpiling and the BC Care providers actually put out a news release on Thursday saying that the supply of surgical masks and gloves for healthcare providers that need these tools, well, that supply is drying up because too many people are buying them and stockpiling them for themselves. So let's bring in Daniel Fontaine, who is the CEO of the BC Health Providers, oh, sorry, BC Care Providers Association. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on, Joel. Uh, how much of a concern is it right now as far as healthcare providers and people who work particularly with seniors getting these supplies? It's very much a concern. Uh, one of our partner organizations, Safe Care BC, who works directly with all the, the basically the frontline staff within the care home settings, did a survey of their membership this week and found that about 57% were reporting that they were already experiencing some difficulty in securing medical supplies. We were getting calls as well this week, which uh, from some of our members who indicated that they were running critically low, which resulted in us uh, joining together and issuing the public statement this week, encouraging the public if they are healthy, uh, if they are not symptomatic, if they've not been advised to be wearing surgical masks, uh, they should not be purchasing them and hoarding them because what's happening is the very people that need these masks to both ensure that they don't uh, accidentally spread COVID-19 or that they don't contract it from a senior, uh, those clinicians are not going to be able to access those masks. And so every mask that's on a healthy British Columbian is a mask that's not on a, on a, on a care provider that needs it. And so that was the message we were giving out this week. Uh, it's got to be frustrating, too, because we've heard the message over and over again that by wearing these masks, that they also do nothing. And that if you're walking mm-hmm. around, they're not going to stop you if you are exposed to, from getting this virus, if you're exposed to it. But they are needed by health care workers. Absolutely needed. They're, they're a vital component of the uh, medical supplies that we use in addition to things like like uh, hand sanitizer and, and gloves and, and gowns, all that stuff, all that type of equipment, medical supplies is absolutely critical to ensure that uh, the workers that are working within long-term care homes are safe and that the seniors don't accidentally contract COVID-19 from one of the workers. But if you're healthy and you're not exhibiting any symptoms, um, or if you think that by putting that mask on that that's going to somehow prevent you from getting COVID-19, you're, you're taking a mask out of the out, out of the system. And it's a mask that, that one of our care homes will not be able to purchase online or be able to purchase from their suppliers. And we did reach out to all the suppliers this week in British Columbia once we started hearing that there were some, some critical shortages. And they, in fact, did report back to us that they are out, that they literally don't have any supplies. And when you have uh, countries like South Korea and others that are looking at uh, prohibiting uh, basically exports of these masks, we're looking out into the next three, four, five weeks just to you know raise a flag for the public that 
please don't purchase these products. By doing so, you may have the unintended consequence of hurting the very people who are most at risk of, of contracting COVID-19. What about people, though, and if we take, uh, say it's a normal flu season, when people mm-hmm. visit people in care facilities, they're told, especially if you haven't had a flu shot, you're told to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. What about people in that scenario? Well, that's the thing, Jill, is that if there are no masks um, to be given out to the clinical staff, there definitely won't be any masks available for family members to come in. And then it becomes problematic because we then, um, you know, people won't be able to have loved ones come in and visit. And I will say that one of the protocols that we are putting in place is that if you are in any way feeling symptomatic, if you're not feeling well, we are encouraging everyone to not visit uh, grandma or grandpa and stay out of the care homes for the for the foreseeable number of weeks until we have a bit more control on this because you can accidentally bring that in to a care home setting. And we've seen what happened in Kirkland, Washington. Older people, at those particularly in seniors' care homes, are very vulnerable to this particular uh, virus, as they are with flu. Flu is an incredibly... Uh, you know, a horrible illness when it goes through an outbreak in a care home. So we're following the same protocols and we're encouraging people to, to stay away. And, and if they think even by, by putting on a mask that, you know, that they're coming in, that they may not, uh, you know, pass it along. We just prefer you just not come in until you're feeling better and then uh, contact the care home in advance to make sure that, that everything's okay and they do have masks for you if you do arrive. And is it mainly masks at this point or is it also because we've been seeing people hoarding hand sanitizer and other mm-hmm. things as well? Oh, yeah, I know it's right now the hand sanitizer and the mask seem to be the, the big thing. I mean, I was at an event yesterday and typically one of our the sponsors for this event brings things like hand sanitizer and to the guests to arrive and they couldn't even secure it. So and they're in the pharmaceutical industry. So we, we know it's very, uh, you know, there's a lot of shortages on this. You know, all joking aside, it's it's one thing to hoard toilet paper and to hoard other things that people are finding off at at Costco, but it's a completely other thing to be hoarding and to be purchasing medical supplies. And that's what's unique to this particular COVID-19 outbreak uh, as compared to SARS or other previous outbreaks is the public reaction to it. um, And perhaps it's because of the heightened media awareness, but the public reaction to it has been very unique. And, and this is the first time I've seen this, and I've talked to other folks in the field, where we've seen the public purchasing medical supplies at this great number, which has resulted in these shortages. So um, something's happening out there that has put a fear into people, and they're, they're out there purchasing these products when they don't necessarily need to do so. Yeah, which is unfortunate because the the fear is good or the awareness is good mm-hmm. knowing about this. But uh, then, the, I mean, not listening to the advice of hand washing, not touching mm-hmm. your face and, and the things that will actually protect you, not hoarding masks. Absolutely. There are so many things, as the provincial health officer said, that you can do every single day. Like you said, washing hands, making sure you don't touch your face, making sure that you're, if you are symptomatic, you stay at home. If you can, try to prevent yourself from being exposed to others. There's a lot of things, and these are very common, um, Jill, to when we have flu outbreaks. It's exactly the same protocol for when we do have flu, and you would treat it in the same way. It's just that, as your previous guest indicated, it appears that this particular strain, this particular virus, is a bit more uh, challenging to deal with and, and can, can obviously kill more people than the flu. So we're obviously more concerned about it. But the same protocols apply to preventing a flu as with COVID-19. Nothing, nothing is really different in that case. All right. So we will leave it there. Daniel, thank you so much for your time this morning.
Thanks for having me on. There is a very cool event going to be taking place later today, starting at one o'clock at the Coast Mental Health Resource Centre on Seymour Street. And it's all because of the thoughts of 12-year-old Zach Weinberg and uh, the official launch of the Zach Pack is going to take place. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Zach Weinberg and Michelle Weinberg to talk a little bit more about this. Thanks to both of you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you. Thanks. I want to start with Zach and get a little background. Zach, I want you to tell us what the Zach Pack is and how you came up with the idea. So it is a 20-liter dry bag filled with essential items for the clean for, for the homeless so that they can be as clean, comfortable, dry, warm as possible during these winter months. Each Zach Pack includes a toque, scarf, gloves, pair of thermal socks, emergency blanket, rain poncho, tarp, umbrella, reusable water bottle, granola bar, toothbrush and other toiletries, and a bus ticket. Wow, that's a, that's a long list. So how did you manage to get all that stuff together and make these packs? I contacted corporations and individuals to see if they were interested. We were able to get over 100 donors and exceeded my fundraising goal of $100,000 and were able to push it to $115,000. If you want to see the full list and just generally learn more about the project, you can go to www.zachgivesback.com. One other thing to get the project out there in November 2019, I also spoke on the Wee Day stage in Vancouver in front of 20,000 people. That's, and how was that? Um, I, w- I would say it was a little nerve-wracking, <laughs> but I guess anything to get the project out, as many people as we could get for donors, the better. Absolutely. What first got you involved, though, in wanting to help people who are homeless? So when I moved here from Winnipeg, which is a much smaller city, four years ago, I was struck by how beautiful the city is as well as by the prevalence of homelessness. Well, every major city does face this issue, I was shocked to see just how many were left homeless, especially in the downtown east side area. How is it possible that there are so many people left homeless in such an affluent, world-class city like Vancouver? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question for sure. Uh, Michelle, I want to bring you in on, on this as well. What are your thoughts uh, on uh, watching what Zach has done here? It's pretty exciting, I have to say. As a family, we've uh, been happy to support Zach. Um, From the the start of this, he initially wanted to just do a sock and toothbrush drive and uh, amongst his peers at school, and then he said, Mom, I want to take this bigger. Um, You know, there's lots of excellent programs like Backpack Buddies that support the youth, Um, but the youth is is, uh, sadly only a small component of the homeless count in Vancouver. And so Zach told my husband and I, you know, Mom, I want to make sure there's going to be one pack for everyone. Another interesting aspect, he also wanted to kind of differentiate his um, project in terms of the actual bag. It was very important to him for the environment that the bag be reusable. And it's a 20-liter dry bag. And given we live in such a rainy city, he thought this would be a great bag that people could take out what they need out of the bag and then maybe put some of their valuables in this bag to keep them dry. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a brilliant because we often talk about things uh, they need to be waterproof, especially given given this climate. Absolutely. Uh, so, Zach, have you been handing out the bags at this point? Not yet, but today will be our first real distribution day. As you mentioned, the launch event will be this afternoon at Coast Resource Center, where the distribution will really begin. 
And are you excited that you're finally going to be able to actually take this product and give it to somebody? Oh, absolutely. It's great to see uh, all this hard work finally get to put to use. I finally get to see the visual of it, these people taking the Zach packs, people enjoying these Zach packs. So I'm really excited to see how that all plays out. And how many are you going to be distributing today? I am distributing just today. I actually don't have that statistic, <laughs> but for uh, all the Zach packs, I am planning to get one Zach pack for every person facing homelessness in Vancouver, as my mother just mentioned, all 2,200 of them. Hmm. And, and Michelle, what are your thoughts? I mean, have you since, I mean, as a family, do you, do you make it that you guys talk about homelessness or talk about the importance of, of helping people who don't have shelter, don't have a home? How did, how did your son, do you think, get to, get to, to kind of choose this as his passion? Uh, yes. I mean, amongst uh, our family, we spend a lot of time, you know, talking about issues, uh, you know, whether it's just at the dinner table talking about, you know, the news of the day. Um, and as Zach said, we've, uh, we're relative newcomers to Vancouver and he, you know, clearly, you know, Winnipeg has its share of homeless as well, but I mean, just how visible it is in this city, uh, really struck Zach and, uh, that's the cause that he wanted to take up. He's also an active member of the WE organization, um, on their youth advisory council and we really empower his youth to, I mean, their motto is making doing good doable. And uh, and uh, they really inspire youth to take up both a local and international cause. And for Zach, it was homelessness. So, um, you know, I think Zach feels pretty grateful for, you know, we have a, you know, I think his, his view is that if you have a roof over your head, you have food to eat, you have somewhere to go to school or work, that it's your duty to give back. Yeah. And are you, were you, did you anticipate that it would take off and become this big? Honestly, I think we're a little, both a little bit shocked, or my husband and I as well. I mean, uh, we were shocked to see I mean, him pull off the Wee Day stage as well. That's a pretty uh, daunting task. Zach, so, go ahead. Uh, one thing that I was shocked to see is that this, all 2200, this was kind of the ideal situation, to have a Zach pack for everyone and contains all of these useful items. So while this was kind of the ideal I really am happy that it turned out the way that it that it the way that it did, and uh, I don't know. I was kind of surprised to see it. <laughs> it was a daunting task. What can I say? Yeah, no, and it's a surprise in a good way. What happens? Have you thought about what happens next after you've distributed all twenty two hundred Zach packs? Uh, do you know what your next steps will be? Well, we've we've had a few people on uh, pickup. Um, Zach was just talking. I think you asked him about the kind of distribution. Uh, we did because we had so many wonderful volunteers. Literally, we had over sixty people helping us pack these bags, and so we were literally uh, a full day ahead of schedule. And as a result of that, we were able to um, have some outreach agencies come to us and pick up some bags. So the first distribution, actually, um, they're not in the hands of their clients, but they are in the hands of the agency. And that was the uh, Covenant House came uh, to pick up 150 bags, for example. They actually were our first pickup. Uh, we had probably eight other agencies pick up yesterday, and then we'll have, as I said, over 30 in total different agencies in Vancouver receiving these bags. Um, so again, it, that was uh, that was a joy to be ahead of schedule, and today we'll be loading and hand delivering the rest of them because there's a lot of smaller outreach organizations that just don't have the resources to come get the bags.
Right. And, and that's what I was wondering, too, is how that actually works. Is it, is it physically then people going out onto the streets or, or do people without shelter uh, come and meet people? Or how do you, how will, I guess, how will you make sure that you get the bags to everybody that needs them? And, and actually, that's one of Zach's main concerns in terms of his vision for this project is like, how do we reach these people? Uh, there's, there's, there's homeless, obviously, who we see on the streets, but there's so much uh, in terms of hidden homeless people, couch surfing, like how do you get to those people? Um, was one of Zach's concerns. So we have worked with Coast um, uh, Mental Health or the Resource Centre in particular uh, to develop a list of agencies um, in different areas uh, who deal with youth, men's shelters, women's shelters, family shelters. Um, So what I've heard from the agencies, we've talked as a family to each of these individuals, um, like outreach people at at these individual agencies, and they've told us this is how they're going to use the bag that let's say you're a shelter and you have 57 bags and it's like 9 o'clock at night and you're sold out. Uh, it's just a terrible position for these the staff members to have to turn out these people on the street at night. And so that's when they're going to whip out a Zach pack and give it to the individual so at least they can have something. Zach, would you like to add? Yeah, and that's how uh, another reason why how the project started is as a 12-year-old, I cannot find the money and build affordable, low-cost and uh, available housing. So to make their lives waiting for available and affordable housing, courageously, might I add, the Zach Packs are there to make their lives just a little bit easier. All right. Well, I know it's going to be a a very uh, well-attended event this afternoon. Thanks to both of you for joining me this morning to give us a bit of a preview and bring us up to date on the project. Appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. And uh, for anyone who wants to check more about it, uh, Zach has a social media site, and it's called the Zach Pack Project Z-A-C-P-A-C. Well, as you might have heard in the news, the results of the very first phase of a technical feasibility study into the idea of a fixed rapid transit link fixing mix or connecting the North Shore to the rest of Metro Vancouver. Well, the first phase has been completed and it has shortlisted six potential options should the province go ahead with the idea. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Mike Little, the mayor of the District of North Vancouver. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Uh, so taking a look at these six options that were put forward, uh, two are tunnel crossings, two are new bridge crossings, one is an existing bridge crossing. What do you think about the six options? Well, I think for the North Shore, which uh, sits behind congestion on a daily basis, all six options are going to help give us uh, uh, an extra route out of, off, off the North Shore or onto the North Shore. But I tend to think that the eastern options provide us the best opportunity to address some of the other concerns in our community as well. And so which ones, which ones would you be talking about there? Uh, both uh, five and six really help us unlock access to um, more affordable housing and the ability to produce uh, transit-oriented developments both in our community and by accessing that sort of eastern corridor, um, we, we have the opportunity to produce more affordable housing. It does seem to make more sense. And when you talk about five and six, so five would be a new bridge crossing uh, from Burnaby, was it Burnaby to Lonsdale? And six would be uh, an existing br- the existing bridge, again, Burnaby uh, to, to Lonsdale. Uh, it does seem like that opens up more area rather than if we're talking about crossings that put people in the downtown core of Vancouver from the North Shore. And, and also the, uh, the Western options go from the most expensive postal codes to the other most expensive postal codes. So it doesn't provide you a lot of opportunity to produce affordability. 
the eastern options uh, also, lots of the people that come to the North Shore for work in the mornings, they're not coming from the downtown core. They're coming from uh, the region. And so if we only do a connection to the downtown area, then that forces everybody on transit to go through the downtown platforms and and system before they can come to the North Shore. And those platforms are already over max in, in some cases. And so... Uh, a, a more eastern connection into rapid transit makes better uh, use of existing infrastructure. And what about the option number four, which is a, which is a Lonsdale again, but it's it says downtown Vancouver, but it's still on the east side over towards more. It just happens to be on the other side of Boundary. Yeah, you know, I don't think that we've gotten into the specifics of what kind of a route it would have to be, but that number four one would be tricky because it would have to swoop through um, you know, sort of the Hastings corridor, I've got to imagine, to be able to uh, connect up to the to the downtown uh, core. But again, it doesn't address that issue of so many people coming to the North Shore for work not from the downtown core. And so you, again, are forcing everybody to go downtown first before they can get onto rapid transit to the North Shore, which I, I just don't think is efficient. And it also um, overburdens uh, routes that are already overburdened. Uh, does it seem odd that we're talking about this or looking at these options and tunnel options, bridge options, without any cost analysis at this point? It's more fun to, isn't it, right? <laughs> I suppose, yeah. Anything yeah, anything you want, you can have. No problem. Uh, I think the eastern routes uh, also, one of them obviously is a better utilization of the existing infrastructure. I've got to imagine that that's going to be the cheapest option, but it also will probably save us a lot of time as well. Um, the, the costs are, are one thing. The, the uh, time delays are, are absolutely another thing that we have to consider in this. I mean, we're sitting behind a wall of congestion on a daily basis now. And so uh, anything that can trim time off uh, is also something that I, I want to seriously look at. Right. But I'm just thinking if you're looking at something like option six, which has the existing bridge crossing, if you're comparing that to a brand new tunnel crossing, it seems like it's apples and oranges. There's no there's not going to be a comparison there when we're talking about time and money. If those options are are realistically put on the table. Uh, Certainly not. And all of these options are going to be in the in the billion uh, dollar range. Uh, There's no question about it. Um, But. Again, sometimes you can also add value by um, by having something go through a route where you can do transit-oriented development. You could do uplift on the property. You can uh, actually open up new spaces that um, that you could do some development to help offset the impact. Um, but uh, if it's if it's just a straight-up tunnel from from point to point, there's very little opportunity to do uh, uplift throughout and and help pay for it. And there's no timeline either at this point. Uh, you mentioned the gridlock that people sit in. I mean, on most weekends, I'm going out to the global offices in Burnaby. Every single time, it seems, I see the gridlock going the other way. That's on the weekends. Uh, I mean, a lot of that is due to construction. But we're, people are sitting in that already. What kind of a timeline do you think would be reasonable to really be talking about this in earnest? You, you've nailed it, uh, Jill. I mean, it's not just um, uh, about building the right mix of housing connecting with uh, the demand of the North Shore. We have the demand of the North Shore seven days a week because people are using the North Shore as uh, a 
of recreational space. As, as people move into smaller and smaller spaces within the Lower Mainland, they're doing a lot more destination recreation where they'll go out for a Saturday and spend a whole day in, in the parks up on the trails. And uh, we're definitely seeing that seven days a week. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely um, motivated to find a solution right away. Would you say, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about the George Massey Tunnel as it's a huge bottleneck as well. Do do you feel like the North Shore doesn't get the attention that it deserves when it comes to gridlock? Massey Tunnel's in around 85,000 daily trips. We're at 135,000 daily trips uh, on the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. Patello Bridge is also around 75,000 daily trips. We definitely, I, I, I do think that we need to have solutions for those bottlenecks as well, but uh, I, th- I think we need the, the region to recognize that the North Shore is next, that we have to um, um, be planning and preparing for the eventual replacement of this major piece of infrastructure on the North Shore. And do you think there's the appetite then for people to get out of their vehicles? Like you mentioned, if you're going hiking or skiing, it's not like you can just suddenly go on a bus or if a light rail option or something is, is, is available. Do you think there is that appetite for people to leave their vehicles at home? You have to give them a viable option. And if uh, if it's easy enough to, to maybe make two stops on rapid transit, you know, you come across on a, on a light rail option and then you take a short bus up into Lynn Valley, uh, maybe the, then then you can use that for that purpose. We don't we don't need every single person to shift onto transit. We need uh, we need a percentage of people to shift onto transit to make it so that our infrastructure isn't beyond its critical um, capacity. And what about things like CBUS or upping transit options that are available right now? We have been pursuing that. So on April 6th is a, a big day for transit on the North Shore. That's when the uh, rapid bus connection from Fibs Exchange out to Park Royal will start. Uh, we've also now got the third CBUS uh, uh, ser- level of service happening on the North Shore. We'll have a CAPU shuttle uh, uh, starting that day and also a Metrotown Express starting that day. So we, we have made some major changes to transit on the North Shore to try to address that issue and make it a viable option for people. But um, uh, again, it's it, it's going to be about providing efficient, reliable options for people so that they can they can see themselves getting out of their car and instead relying on transit. And any idea now that uh, the first phase of this, the feasibility study uh, has been done, any idea when we might see more information on this? So it just depends on how many options they decide to narrow down to. And and so Mott McDonald's been the, the study leader on this. So we've been participating through the Integrated North Shore Transportation Planning Project Group, which is uh, First Nations, local government, feds, provincial, and TransLink all sitting at the table together, working well together. Uh, if it gets narrowed down to a couple of options uh, for the, the $500,000 portion of the study, then I think, um, you know, we could see some, some early results uh, in the fall. All right. We will be waiting and uh, waiting to see what happens next with that. Uh, Mayor Mike Little, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill.